woke is now silencing artists of color. What are we supporting? Mm. You know, artists of color, you know, we should never be saying what we are and aren't allowed to do. I'm a Gen Xer. So for us, the fight was just to tell the stories we wanted to tell, not to tell certain stories in certain ways, not to tell only certain stories in a, in a, in a certain type of acceptable way. That's not my battle. My battle is the Gen X battle of representation. The Latinos Out Loud podcast. during a pandemic, waking up dead. And, yes, um, that's what I was reading about. You know, I, I've been Tell to me. film school and I made a, a prior feature in a short, but I was constantly on YouTube because once the pandemic hit, I was on my own. Like nobody was working side by side with me in post-production. You know, I didn't have like the team that I would traditionally have. It was all just me. And so I was always on YouTube. I was like, I re-educated myself as a filmmaker via YouTube. Yeah, I think what I find to be... Um... Uh, from reading in terms of how you um you shot the film is that you actually really one that it was a micro budget um which I think is like would definitely love to hear more about that and what that means to you as a filmmaker and how you see that in the in the landscape of filmmaking now and then yeah. also that you did it during a you know, during the COVID era. And so like how you adhere to like COVID protocols and how you um, incorporated that into your actual like daily shoot. Um, I also definitely want to hear more about that, but maybe we can start with like you doing an intro of yourself and of course um, the film, and then we can um, kick it off with, sure, um, with sure. nitty gritty. You look fab on the Zoom, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. No, because I know you said I'm you were doing your YouTube tutorial. Well, it worked. You look, you look, yeah. bad. You, look bad. <laughs> you do. You look, you look bad. It's very comforting. Um, yeah, I'll give you a, a quick um, intro of myself. Like we're on a date, and we got to do like the first five minutes. Please. Yeah, you can tell Basically. all the spiritual programs. Yeah, like we've been in therapy. We've been in Jungian dream therapy. We've been in Kabbalah. Like just like get all our childhood traumas out of the way. Um, yeah, I made a short, my Polish waiter, um, in the nineties. When I was really young, I was in my early 20s, and I played Sundance and, and Outfest and all the big festivals, new directors, new films. But it was like, it was, I was very young, and it was 1995, and it was a very different time for Latinos in the industry. Um, there were not a lot of Latinos out there in film, indie film or Hollywood film. Um, you know, I always say um, to my friends like Elaine Del Valle and Guillermo Diaz, I always say, we know what it's like to be the only Latino in the room when there weren't supposed to be any Latinos in the room. And yet there we were, you know what I mean? That's not, I'm not that old and that's not that long time ago, but it, it, things are very different. And so like I had a great time at Sundance with my short, but uh, the guy I was dating at the time was white. He still is white. He was white at the time as well. And every one kept thinking he was Terracino. And even when they would introduce the film, they would call it Terracino and they would assume it was the white guy. Because there were, I don't know how many other Latinos were at Sundance at that point in the 90s, but I, I remember running into one other. Like, I, you know, you're young and people are young, but it was a very different time 20, 25 years ago to be Latino in this industry. It was just like, you know. And so um, after my short, I signed with a huge agency in Hollywood, like the biggest. And... Um, they were sending me out like to meet with sitcoms, you know, to write for them. 
And the first sitcom, I won't say because it became a smash hit, like one of the biggest sitcoms of the last 25 years. And I walked in the room and my hand to God, uh, the producer looked right at me and said, hey, I just want to check. You speak English, right? Like it was, it was, by the by, I didn't know at that point being a New Yorker that people in LA don't get sarcasm. And so thinking he was joking, you can see how how this went right over a cliff. I replied, no, I don't speak a word. (laughs) And he actually, because they don't get sarcasm in LA, looked at me and said, well, that's going to be a problem. So that was my experience. And, you know, if you're, you know, over 40, you remember those times, you know, and, and so I had a lot of frustrations with the short. And then um, I always had a great relationship with HBO. Um, somebody at HBO told me, um, you know, this guy, this kid, because he was a kid. He was like 24, 25, Calixo Chinchilla. He's starting a short for, he's starting a film festival for Latinos. And I met Calixto. Um, and um, I started working for the Latino Film Festival. It was late 1999. And the first one was in the summer of 2000. And that was a transformative experience for me. And, um, you know, and we shouldn't forget like what he did in terms of there was nothing like that going on in the year 2000. You know what I mean? And then um, Elizabeth Gardner came aboard as executive director and we had sponsors like HBO and, mm-hmm. and, and suddenly this festival was making an impact. And I was able through working with the festival to help other Latinos because I had experience in Hollywood and I had experience at the big agencies and I had had this short that had gone around the world. And it was like, you know, it was like, I would say almost a healing time for me, you know, and, um, and then in 2012, uh, I made Elliot Loves, my feature debut, um, really backed by the New York International Latino Film Festival and HBO bought it and played, you know, Outfest and all the big festivals, like all the big A-list film festivals. And it was on HBO for years. And I did really well with that. And I moved back to LA and it was just a much better time in LA in recent years because I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not a woker, which is going to be the backdrop to this because I'm like, when times are better, times are better. And we can only manifest from the positive. Mm. You know what I mean? We can, it's just like a relationship. If you hate, the person you're with, you blame them for all, for all your problems, nothing good will come of it. You know what I mean? We can only manifest from the positive. There's just no other way. And so when I moved back to LA in 2015, everyone was falling all over me because I was the new Latino in town. And now Hollywood want that, wants that. And that was fantastic. And so I lost like the chip on my shoulder and I, like, and I was like, I can work from this, this positive, you know, this new positive here. And I sold a pilot um, my second week in LA uh, to wow. Warner Brothers, and and then I, I I I just as the pandemic was coming on, I had written this film called Waking Up Dead, which was about all my up and down experiences in Hollywood. It's about a gay Latino actor, you know, and he's 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 flatlining in Hollywood, and he's he's got no place to live, and he's house sitting for a friend. And um, I was putting it together with Carrie Barden, my good friend and my casting director. And he's, you know, a major casting director. And, you know, he did Sex in the City and, and The Help and Boys Don't Cry. And we were putting this film together. And I wasn't necessarily intending at that moment that it was going to be micro-budget because Elliot Loves cost only $80,000. And I did not want to make another micro-budget again. I was thinking, like, but it, but it was largely single location. So I knew it wasn't going to be a lot of money. And then right as we started to cast, the pandemic hit. 
and we went into the lockdown and um i was in touch with sag the whole time remember this is 2020 there's no vaccine yet yeah. nobody knows anything that's going to happen but sag was willing to greenlight the film for production because it was so small because there were so few actors and because there were so few locations you know what i mean so it oddly created a downward pressure on the budget because it couldn't get too big. We couldn't spend too much because we had been approved because it was such a small project. So it kind of hemmed me in in that regard. I couldn't expand it in any way, you know. But we shot for 12 days in, in L.A. in September 2020. And it was a very, very big deal. Um, at that period of time in L.A., only five films were shooting and my gay Latino project was one of them. And we got international press. I was on the BBC. I was in the Hollywood Reporter. I was profiled in the Hollywood Reporter. I was in Variety. It was a very big deal that this guy and this tiny film had made it through. And I had a great cast, Tracy Lords and Judy Geeson, who hadn't made a film in years. She had retired. But she made her debut opposite Sidney Poitier and To Sir With mm -hmm. Love. And, and I came across via Carrie, Carrie Barden, all of these great artists who just didn't want to sit on our hands and do nothing for the pandemic. Um, and especially, the cast is largely Latino, and especially for Latino actors, it was important to be savvy because our careers can go colder so much faster. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I said, I work from the positive. Things are so much better. And you know that like, it's so much better to be Latino in Hollywood. It's like great, but it's still more precarious, mm -hmm. you know? And so a lot of Latino actors were falling all over themselves to be involved in the project because they didn't want to sit on the sidelines for one or two years of the pandemic because maybe they wouldn't have a career to go back to, which frankly was my view. Like, let's push ahead because, you know, I knew I knew the ups and downs by then so well, you know, and um, we we had all of these protocols and they were coming up with the protocols every day because nothing else was shooting. So we were getting phone calls every day. Do this, do that, because they were figuring it out, too, you know, but we had to test everyone every day and I had to have the set disinfected every five days. So we, we shot for four days and we had to stop so we could clear out of the set for two days and have it disinfected and then return and shoot for four days, clear out, have it disinfected, you know, all of these things, have everyone tested every day. And it ended up being um, a really, really no budget film with a huge amount spent on COVID. But we didn't know what we were getting into, but me and my mm -hmm. producers and my investors and the cast were like, let's take the plunge. And, and I was proud and I am proud that you know, I'm a Latino filmmaker and we're the ones who took the plunge, you know, and, and I would, I still hear from all these filmmakers, um, you know, like, how did you do it? How do I do, you know, and it was great to kind of be not the canary in the coal mine because <laughs> nothing, but, yeah. you know, to kind of be on the cutting edge like that and, and have that be for people of color, you know what I mean? And have us be the ones who were showing the way. I'm really, really proud of that. And um, we had high hopes for the film. Uh, because like I said, my prior stuff, my short, my feature had played all the A-list film, film yeah. festivals. Plus we had all this international press and profiles of us. Yeah. And, um, the also film, you know, like, like y'all and Tom Cruise, right? Like th those were the things that were yes, like, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. was, like hinging on trying to figure out, like if y'all, if, if you figured out how to do it, then everyone yeah. could then. If, if I didn't course, die and yeah. Tom Cruise didn't die, <laughs> we were all going to be okay. <laughs> Well, at least no, but if the cast, you know. Yeah, but seriously, because you're right. Because, like, there was not... It's so weird because you used the term earlier, the COVID error. And I was like, oh, my God, we already can say that. 
what were you doing, Paula, during the war years? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just like it's already, what were you doing during the Blitz in London? It's just, yeah. it's already like another time that we've lived through, you know? And, um, and yeah, I'm like really proud of that. You know, we went in with a $60,000 budget for this feature. But like I said, the, the, the kind of catch-22 with SAG was the film would be as small as possible, but we'd have to spend a lot on COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, like I said, to actually, I ended up making the film for pennies uh, because most of it went to COVID. Um, and now, three years later, you don't even need to do half those protocols. Like, now if you mm -hmm. do a project, you don't need to pay to get the actors tested every day, you know? But at the time, because there was no vaccine... And I had, and you know, Judy Jason, when she shot the film, was 73, and she mm, was one yeah. of my leads. Wow. So we have to be super careful. So we spent $10,000 testing actors every day. Yeah. You know, now you don't even have to do that. Um, but like I said, we, you know, we had really high hopes for it, and I had high festival expectations. And um, we started submitting to festivals in January 2022. And uh, something extraordinary happened. It never happened to me in my career, a big Latino film festival emailed me personally to tell me all of their problems with the film. And mm -hmm. I had never experienced that. Normally you just reject a film. You don't reach out to the filmmaker to like give them a litany of complaints. And it was, yeah. so my lead is a gay Latino actor and he's hasn't had work in like three years. And he, he, gets called in to audition for the lead in a Shonda Rhimes series on Netflix. You know, so that's the crux of the film. He believes that even though he's house-sitting and has no money, everything's about to turn around. You know what I mean? Like every actor you and I have ever met in our lives. Like, yeah. everything's going to turn around right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's feast or famine. And, yes, and it's, always, it is. It's feast or yeah. famine, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you're and always so, on you know, the brink of feast. Yeah, right, on the brink of feast, whilst famining. You know, yes. so so... You know, he's got a, like a sex addiction problem and he's got a drug and alcohol problem. And basically, you know, he he's, sends in the audition and he finds out he's going to be called back. And so he's got three days and he's just going to turn his life around. He's going to go sober, clean up his act and become a good person. So part of the his journey is like he's this gay Latino actor and he's auditioning for uh, a, tr a role to play a transgender surgeon mm. on this kind of Grey's Anatomy-esque show. Um, and um, so part of it is his journey to understand that, you know, to step mm. outside himself and understand that. And so the first complaint I got was he comes off as transphobic and that's not acceptable. Mm. And I was replied, but that's his journey. You know, if you want to, trans is a very big thing to explore nowadays. And I have friends who are trans and they talk a lot about transphobia within the gay community. So I exactly. thought, yeah. you know, so I thought, here's something great to talk about. But they were like, no, he comes off as transphobic. It's just a no. And then he bonds with a white woman, Judy Jason. Mm -hmm. And this festival is like, why does he have to bond with a white woman? And I had mm -hmm. this litany of what I call woke complaints. And by woke, I mean there's political correctness, which I adhere to as all people of color do, you know, we should be careful, you know, about how we speak of others or judge others. But woke is a dogma. It's a list of can and can'ts, what you can and cannot do, you know, and I 
no artist can be into that kind of dogma. And I thought, well, the festival isn't, this is just an outlier, like it won't. And then another major festival where LA Loves had played and had won best film, they contacted me and the distributor and they were like, no way can we show this. And it was the mm-hmm. same shit. Why does he bond with a white woman? He's, he's kind of transphobic. And it was, and it started to be festival after festival. Yeah. Like with these issues and they were, t- you know, these issues. And I'm like, wow, this is, and normally, you know, to be honest, if you know the festival world, I'm a gay Latino film fi- filmmaker. I'm coming in with an A-list festival pedigree. I made the yeah. only micro budget film in LA during the pandemic. I made one of only five films made in LA during the pandemic. That's a festival film. Yeah. You know, it is. That's what festivals are about. And then we had festivals program it, five festivals programmed it, and then they dropped us before they showed it, basically saying it's too much of a hot potato. And then Outfest, and I go back to Outfest with the 90s. They've shown all my work. They helped me finance Elliot Loves. I've worked for Outfest. Mm. We had this crazy back and forth with them. They were going to show it. They were not going to show it. And finally, you know, the distributor and I were talking, and we had to recognize there's a fear out there nowadays Mm. in America. You know, we see it in the arts and culture. There's a fear of getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. And finally, a programmer in Florida at a very big film festival told me, it isn't that anyone really has an issue with anything in my film. He told me this. He goes, it's just that we know there's a good chance it could get us into trouble. Mm. And nobody wants to get into trouble. And the funny thing is, and uh, Rich Wolf, the head of my distributor, Breaking Glass, who's you know, really experienced, amazing. And Rich said, you know, until just a few years ago in indie film and festivals, they wanted to get into trouble. You wanted that provocative film. You wanted that controversial film. But now they're running for the hills. Um, And then we did debut in September at the Palm Springs Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And the distributor and I were like, what's going to happen? Are they going to burn the theater down? I was like, should I invite the cast? I I didn't know because I didn't know what was going to happen. And we won Best Film and Best Director there. And there was no pushback. And we played the Dominican Film Festival in New York. And we played like the Tampa Gay and Lesbian Film Festival in Florida. And all of the programmers from those festivals told me they had heard that I, the film already had this rep as this film you can't show. Yeah. But they're like, they're like, there's nothing offensive in the film. They, they knew. It was just the fear that somebody may be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, it's woke to me as a new McCarthyism. So, you know, I, I told the distributor at the time, you know, I have a lot of good press contacts and um, I want to go public with mm-hmm. what's going on. And at the time, they didn't want me to because they were afraid maybe it would just create greater pushback. Yeah. yeah. So, like, we didn't know, you know. And then... um Finally, when we hit Amazon and iTunes and Netflix in November, uh, Rich, who's amazing, Rich Wolf called me and he goes, all right, pull the cord and do what you like. <laughs> now you can say what you like, do what you like. And I was like, okay. So um, I pitched it to Variety and Variety wrote a big article about the film, which came out in January of this year. But they also profiled other films that ran into trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a film uh, called Unredacted mm-hmm. and um, it debuted at Sundance. But the filmmaker is white. She speaks Arabic. She's lived in the Middle East her entire adult life. Megan, I know her. 
after she, when she played Sundance, all of these people said, no, you're a white woman. You can't make this film about the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So she also played a bunch of festivals that then dropped her. She was accepted into a bunch of festivals that then dropped her. And she ran into it because she was a white woman, made a film about the Middle East. And even though she lived there and she speaks Arabic, that's not allowed. I was a gay Latino filmmaker who made this film with a gay Latino lead who's transphobic to some extent. And he bonds with a white woman. That's not allowed. You know, and this was occurring to even films that were playing Sundance were then being dropped from other festivals. And Sundance kind of disowned her film, but she was attacked. She was attacked online by very prominent people, Megan, who made Unredacted. Mm-hmm. And Sundance wouldn't defend her. And we bonded. I was like, well, we both know what it's like to be out there with our asses flapping in the breeze and getting ourselves mm-hmm. into trouble. You know, um, Megan Smaker is her name. And... I started to bond with other filmmakers who were going through similar things, which is great because I, for months, I was like, this is just me. I, I, I've made this film that's the equivalent of Ebola. What, you know, I made like, what, what have I done? What have I done? Because, you know, you make a $60,000 film. I'm not looking for trouble. You know, I'm not looking yeah. for controversy. It's a very dark comedy, you know, and to get all this controversy and pushback, I felt bad. I was like, what have I done to my cast? What have I done to my distributor? You know, mm. what did I do wrong? And finally I realized I didn't do anything wrong. It's just the times we live in. And I kind of need to embrace that and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like this is, like I said, it's manifestation. This is the situation the universe has put me in. This is the situation I need to work from, you know, but I was kind of hiding from it for a while. Like what the hell is going on? You know? And, um, and so now we get all this press variety. Then Breitbart, you know, the right wing outlet yes. picked up on the story. Which is a weird, yeah, which is like a weird dichotomy from variety to Breitbart to like cover that Hollywood reporter. You're kind of really covering the entire gambit. How does that, yeah. how does that feel Bre- for you? Well, when the Breitbart article hit, uh, I got a text from Rich Wolf and it said, congrats with a question mark. Um, <laughs> um you know, for me, it was really edifying. It was vindicating because I was like, okay, everyone knows this now. Whether they're a liberal outlet or a, a conservative outlet, everyone's aware of my film and what's going on. And I, and I think it's good that, you know, and a lot of filmmakers and actors, very, very prominent ones, you know, because at this point I've been in this game for a long time, have reached out to me privately, <laughs> you know, saying, thank God somebody spoke out against woke, you know. Um, because like I, I said in the Variety article, woke is now silencing artists of color. What are we supporting? Mm-hmm. You know, artists of color, you know, we should never be saying what we are and aren't allowed to do. I'm a Gen Xer. So for us, the fight was just to tell the stories we wanted to tell, not to tell certain stories in certain ways, not to tell only certain stories in a, in a, in a certain type of acceptable way. That's not my battle. My battle is the Gen X battle of representation. I want to be in that room. I want to get this deal. I want to make this movie. That's the Gen X battle in the industry of representation. You know, to have more women directors, to have, you know, more actresses in lead roles, to have more blacks and Latinos writing and directing and producing and doing hair and makeup and costumes. And to me, that's the Gen X battle, you know, visibility and representation. And I think I have to check the poster. But I think the poster says, like, representation matters somewhere. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, when we did this campaign, which was like 2010, 2009, you know, for the New York International Latino Film Festival, that's what it was about. Representation matters because there weren't a lot of people of color in the industry in 2009. There weren't. So now, like I said, to be where we're at now in a, in a much better place, 
But then to see that it's Blacks and Latinos silencing other Blacks and Latinos with woke, with, oh, you can't do that, or you can't have a lead character like that. Or like, what happened to Lin-Manuel Miranda within the Heights? You know, I know Robin de Jesus. Um, he, he was in Elliot Loves. Um, I love In the Heights. I saw it twice on Broadway. And then suddenly there was this controversy about skin tones. And I'm Dominican, and nobody in my family called me up to discuss the skin tones in In the Heights. This was not a real debate. It's just looking for a way to take Lin-Manuel it's, Miranda uh, down. And Rita Moreno yeah. said that. Why are we attacking him? Yeah, it's it's uh, but it's also like media generated kind of, you know, like a social media landscape generated um, kind of um, a self uh, critiquing and silencing that's happening. Yes, um, and that it, is it, nuts. It takes off on social media because it becomes a pile on. Yeah, so exactly. Whatever is the legitimate complaint that maybe something emanates from mm-hmm. just becomes a hysterical pile on, and it's so toxic and negative like from a spiritual element you yes. know like we we're talking about Guillermo Diaz um I was so excited for him with bros there's, a, there's another great yeah. example bros yeah and for me being gay and you know I remember in the late 90s when you still had writers who were closeted in Hollywood mm-hmm. you know and um and, and you know growing up you know in the late 70s and 80s remember you couldn't say gay on television you yeah. couldn't say that and um, so Bros is this big budget gay romance and Guillermo Diaz is in it. And on social media, everyone initially was so excited. This is a breakthrough. This is progress. I was so, I know so many people in the film, a bunch of people from LA. Loves are in the movie. And I noticed the day it opened, it just was a pile on attacking it on social media. You know, I remember they just took the film down and there was this big article in, in, De- in Deadline, the weekend it opened, how people were just taking the film down. And I'm like, what? I don't want to be part of a teardown culture and I don't want to be part of gays taking down other gays or Latinos taking down other Latinos. You know what I mean? And that becomes anti-representation because we are preventing our own visibility and representation. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, in a cultural colonialist sense, we have, you know, taken on the role of our oppressor. You know, well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's how white supremacy works. Right. Because and that's that's, why systemic institutionalized racism that now we've, you know, um, when I had the big agents in Hollywood 20 years ago, if I walked into a room like there was almost never a black or Latino exec there. But if it if they were, they would keep me at arm's length. They didn't want the Mm -hmm. white execs to see them bonding with me. Now. 20 years later, it's like, you know, they're hiring black and Latino execs and they're like, bring in the talented people, you know, bring them in. And I'm like, it's so much better now. You know, it's okay. We can bond. We, we can, you know, like we can, we can have this. Yeah. Community and build. Yeah. Yes. And that's great that we're, cause you know, like I said, 20 years ago, no, if you were a black exec, you were not bringing in black artists. You didn't want to be perceived mm-hmm. as the black exec, you know? Exactly. Now, exactly. It's different. You can be a black exec and bring in any artist you like. And so, like I said, to me, that's positive. That's progress. But then, with what I went through with this film, and then watching what Bros went through, and watching what In the Heights went through, I, I'm like, I'm going to speak out against this thing called woke, in which people of color are on social media believing that it's their job to be blunt, to police and silence more successful, high achieving people of color. 
because that's mm-hmm. what it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel is at the Pantheon. He's at the Zenith. And you can see that people wanted to take him down when we should be so proud that he's there. Yeah. And bu- and further building on the success that he's already creating rather sure. than... That opens rather a door, than that trying. creates a bridge. Yeah, exactly. No, I think, you know, there's also a general lack of understanding of the industry and how it actually works. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you're, you know, when you look around, I'm like, how many Latino directors... Um, you know, are well, like, you know, are well known who are also doing musical films, you know, like there's only so many. Yeah, there's a list um, of one, Lynn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So like there's, there is this also lack of, um, you know, I think of like representation becoming, I also do wonder sometimes, it's not even like if it's really us doing it to us so much as I feel like kind of like the white media being kind of funneled through us because ultimately I feel like this does not happen. This is not happening to white male cisgendered filmmakers, right? Like Martin Scorsese is making a film now with Leonardo DiCaprio where his wife is, um, is indigenous and no one is saying, Yeah, yeah. yeah, no one is saying like dear Martin Scorsese, maybe you're not the man to be making this, you know, this film ultimately. Right. Um, so I think that there's also a, a, that there's still even in that, in like the way that it's being um, weaponized and used against black and Brown artists, that it's still a weapon of the, the, the fact that there is so much racism caked into the industry um, because it's still not really affecting um, your white, you know, male counterparts, um, the way that it's affecting you and your other, um, colleagues in the same way. Agreed. And that's what I said to Variety. I think they ended with the quote where I was like, people of color now with woke are supporting an ideology that's silencing people of color. So whose work are we, whose bidding are we doing? Mm. You know what I mean? Like I ended up having such an uphill, uh, battle with this, film, you know, having to defend it and explain it. And, um, and you're right. It was our own. It was gays at Outfest. It was some Latino film festivals. I mean, not the Dominican film festival. They were amazing. They weren't afraid, you know, not the Palm Spring Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, but a lot of festivals were afraid. And I'm like, well, you're, you're silencing me and my work. You know, mm-hmm. I come, you know, I, I'm, I'm a gay Latino filmmaker. I come with an A-list festival pedigree. That's supposed to mean something, you know, and I pulled off this kind of colossal feat during a pandemic that's supposed to mean something, but you're all running for the hills afraid. It was really disappointing with me, even with Outfest, to see that fear. And, and oh my gosh, you know, that's an A-list film festival. You know, that's the biggest gay and lesbian film festival in the country, and it's the biggest film festival in Los Angeles. And to see you all afraid and running for the films, I also think it's, you know, it, you know why, why are they going to hoover up hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from the gay community to then be part of silencing gay artists. Yes. So to your point, I I wonder whose bidding are we doing? And ultimately it's just going to set us back. Now we are setting us back Mm -hmm. crabs in a barrel, just pushing each other, pulling each other down. You know, it's just really disheartening for me. And, you know, unlike some other filmmakers, I I do have a distributor. We did play the festival circuit. We did win awards. We are on Amazon and all that. So it's a happy-ish ending. But honestly, that's why I wanted to use the megaphone I had because, you know, for the filmmakers who don't have a distributor and they're running into trouble now, it's much, much rougher, you know, and nobody wants to hear your story unless you're actually out there and have achieved a certain amount of like penetration and awareness and success. 
So I really wanted to use the megaphone I had. And so in my long-winded person of color fashion, cycling back to the Breitbart issue, for me, I was like, okay, this is an achievement because it just means everyone is talking about this. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And that's the position I, I was put in. I had to take the megaphone and start shouting from the rooftops what was happening. And at least it's a blessing, Variety and Breitbart and others that they responded, you know. Yeah. Um, and for you, what is, so now uh, do you want to um, speak about all the platforms where uh, people can stream and find um, oh, sure. the film? Yeah. Waking Up Dead, we're on Amazon and iTunes and Vudu and um, we're on all of the platforms. Breaking Glass has been amazing. And then we're going to be on um, Here TV, uh, which is a channel for gay films. We're going to, because I want to hit the gay audience, the Latino audience, you know, and we're going to be on Here TV. We debut in a couple of weeks. And, um, but right now we're like, we're everywhere. You can't escape. We're on Amazon and iTunes okay. and Voodoo and all those, all the platforms. You can find us anywhere. And yeah, so DVD, people can course, check it out. For those who still watch DVDs. Who still, yeah, no, there's still a large, um, a large community of, of DVD viewers. You don't, you definitely don't want to leave them out. So people can yeah. definitely check out um, and be able to see this uh, great film, regardless of the fact that it did hit um, bumps in getting into the festivals. And yeah. for yourself now, moving forward, how do you see, um, now that you have had this experience, what are you thinking for your next film um, and your career moving forward? Um, well, I'm working on a, a new film, uh, that I'm going to shoot in Miami. Um, it's also like a, a raunchy comedy. Um, mm-hmm. but now <laughs> to your point, having learned what I've learned, it's not going to change me as an artist. And, you know, the, 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 it's not going to change me as the artist because the artist has to deal with the times in which we work, whether exactly. you're Paul Ropes and you know, or whether it's the 1970s in Hollywood or wherever the time is, that's the time I'm in. So I'm dealing in these woke times about all the stuff that people of color are saying other people of color can't do or say or think. And I'm cool with that. But what I am doing now that I've learned the hard way is I'm I'm generating a bigger social media presence because I realize Mm -hmm. having that social media platform is really necessary if you're going to be an artist of provocation and controversy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I have to have a bigger social media presence. So I'm about to get my ass on TikTok. Um, and prior to doing this film in Miami, I'm going to kind of drop some skits on TikTok starting next week. And like, mm-hmm. I want to build a bigger social media presence um, because I, that, that actually is helpful. So this way, when my next provocative raunchy comedy comes out mm-hmm. next year, at least now through Instagram and TikTok, there's a context for me and my work. Do you know what I mean? That's important. You know, you do, I guess what I learned is we have to help. We live in a time where I have to help people understand who I am and the artist I am, Mm. you know, and that's something that I have to do. Yeah. Um, And can you speak more to that in terms of like the artist that you are and how you have found um, your journey from just, yeah, from your first film um, which was now like over a decade ago to now that you have had that this is your third, right? So you have mm-hmm. three under under your belt moving into your fourth. Like right. what are the things, yeah, that you have feel like that you have grown um, um, and the ways in which you feel like you've stretched? Yeah, I, I, you know, like with Waking, with Elliot Loves, 
you know, it has animation and visual effects in it. And I shot it for a year and a half. And then we had two years of post-production. It was nearly four years of my time every day. And then with Waking Up Dead, because of the pandemic, it had to be the opposite. I shot it in 12 days over three weeks. And so I was so proud of Waking Up Dead that I learned to move fast, to be more agile, you know. And that's something that's beneficial to any artist. To be able to move fast, just to be able to say yes more quickly, to be able to get it into production more quickly. And so those are things I've learned with this project and the pandemic, you know. I have to be faster on my feet and more agile. And um, I also learned that, you know, mainstream media, BBC, Variety, Breitbart, that's important. But also, you know, social media, we're just living in an age where it's just as important. Yeah. So I have to also to use like it kills me to use this term, but I have to like brand myself on social media and it kills yeah. me to use that term, you know, um, but you do. You have to be more social media engaged, especially if you get into a work that runs into controversy. You have to be able to have this large audience on social media that you can speak to directly unfiltered. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was always social media shy. So when we had the issues with waking up dead, I didn't have that platform. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to build that platform now um, because I, I need that so that if the next comedy that I'm doing, which is about OnlyFans, I'm doing a comedy about OnlyFans. <laughs> I can already see the trouble I'm get, I would get into. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I want to be able to have that social media platform in case mm -hmm. there's pushback so I can discuss it and push back against the pushback. And these are the things that I've learned. Yep. And then do you want to talk, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think I myself as a, as a, as an artist or as someone who defines herself as an artist, um, am having that same, like, uh, I keep banging up against the wall that is branding, right? Because everyone's uh. like, you know, you like as much as you, and, and even in the, in even in like the back end of it, right. That I think a lot of people don't realize is like, as an artist is like, you have to become an LLC. You have to, you know, you, at yes. some point you have to become your own S corp. Like these are kind of like the, the bigger, right. The bigger behind the scene things that happen and that that is so tied into branding. So like, I don't know, do you want to talk more about that and like how you have navigated it or how you're well trying to navigate it now? Well, you know, I guess we're all Warhol's children. You know what I mean? Because he was the, I mean, Salvador Dali did, but what, but, you know, Warhol did consider himself a business and he was kind of the original brander, you know, in terms of how he branded himself as a pop artist. And like you, I was always resistant to that because my view is, you know, I'm a classicist. The artist is about the work. You put the work out there. They do or don't like mm -hmm. the work. It does or does not succeed. That's, but it, it's, it's, it's so much more than that now, which largely has upsides, but it's a lot more work. It's very weird. Like for you, whatever you're doing as an artist, that's your focus. But now simultaneously, you have to be the focus of you too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you, there's no way around it. You know, like, you know, Wes Anderson didn't have to do it because he came up in the 90s. But if Wes Anderson was coming up now, he would have to be doing a lot of shorts on Instagram. He would have to be dropping <laughs> TikToks. He, you know what I mean? Like, yes. he would, you know, it, you know, it's just weird, like, you know, to be an artist now, the, you have the social media presence and it's important that you get out ahead of it so you can define who you are on social media. But then you have this audience and you have to be constantly engaged with you know what I mean? You can't just post up, post one race, racy pick or one funny video. You have to be engaged with the audience. I think the audience engagement is a good thing. 
you know, to build a following and branding yourself and build an awareness. But it's an exhausting thing, especially if you're indie, to write, produce, you know, I, I, I wrote Waking Up Dead, I directed Waking Up Dead, I edited Waking Up Dead, I was one of the finances of Waking Up Dead. And um, to do that and then have to be engaged with social media 24-7, it's really tough. And I grapple with that, you know, because like I, and so it's, that's been a big sea change for me the last few weeks. Like I said, so now before this kind of raunchy comedy about OnlyFans that I'm making in Miami, I need to, to drop some, like I'm being honest, like I, now I need to drop some raunchy risque videos on TikTok. You yeah. get it? So that when the film, so I don't go through Waking Up Dead again, so that when the film comes out, people aren't like, oh my God, you're not allowed to do that. Instead, exactly. they have to see all these popular videos to be like, oh, I get you. This is what you do. Yeah. And so, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, that's the branding of yourself. And like I said, at the start of this conversation, you know, 10 years ago, for an artist, any artist, you know, remember, um, who was it? Damien Hurst, who like 10 or 15 years ago, remember he did the shark and formaldehyde. Yeah. You know, I was like, what the hell is that? You know, yes. and, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, I'm blanking, but the, the great American artist who, who works in Italy, I'm just blanking on his name, who, who did the, 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 the rabbits, the, the rabbit sculptures like 20 years ago mm. that weighed like two tons, you know, mm. and Jeff Koons, Jeff Koons. Remember oh, when yes. Jeff Koons was with a porn star and they were doing all that art and everyone was like, what's that? But as an artist or an indie film person, when people go, oh my God, what's that? You can't do that. That's actually usually a good thing. That gets mm. the ball rolling. Like kids in the 90s. Yeah. You know, that gets the ball rolling. Exactly. Now, that builds entire careers. Because that is yeah. true. In like the 90s, That's it was like the more, yeah, the more risque, especially in terms of like the in, the independent filmmakers. Sure, that's how you were um, going to get into big film festivals and get yeah. the New York Times to write about you, you know. And, but now, you know, like talking about Lin-Manuel within the Heights or, or me with Waking Up Dead. Now when somebody's like, you can't do that, you're in trouble. Because it's going to be echoed hundred thousand other people on social media are going to be like, yeah, you shouldn't be allowed to do this. You should never have been allowed to do this. We shouldn't talk about this. We're not allowed to see it. But then what I've learned is, and I hate to use this terminology, but then you could also use social media to fight back, you know, but you can only do that because you built this presence and awareness. So now we, we are, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same in terms of that. Now it's like, you know, remember when, when John Lennon, he gave that press conference in the late 60s and he's like, well, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. And that was the only thing that was going to derail the Beatles career. They were burning their records. He had to give a press conference and apologize. Right. Mm -hmm. So now it's kind of like, you know, it's a little bit like that again, because now when we get into trouble, we do have to explain and defend, you know, it's like back yeah. in the day, oops, I said that. And now I have to do a mea culpa or something, but you do have to explain and defend. Whereas, like I said, I went into this thinking, well, what the distributor thought, well, if there's any controversy or provocation, that's a good thing. Just let it ride, you know? And now, like, you can't, you know, you have to be out. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, I think it's what you're saying of like, the more things change, the more they stay the same, where it's like, yeah, you still, yeah. as an artist of color, have to... Um, defend and you have to um, explain, explain your art 
even if it's to your own community or at least parts of like, you know, that Venn diagram of communities that it belongs to. Like, you know, you have to be able to explain parts of it to certain parts of, of, um, of that circle so that people can feel like, okay, yes, you are allowed to continue to do this art or you're allowed to be able to do this. To go on. To go on. But that goes back to what you were saying about branding. I'd always look down upon that term, but branding part of, if you're branding properly, it helps you because you are saying, this is who I am. I'm a controversial artist. I'm a provocative artist, you know? So if you can brand yourself as that, that'll help you to some extent because now people know what they're getting. It's still, it's very weird for me as an artist to have to have an audience to know what they're getting. You know what I mean? That, you know, there's part of me that's anathema to that's like, I don't want to have to explain myself or defend myself, see it or don't see it, like it or don't like it. But there is a real pushback now where it could end your career. So there I am. Yeah, you know, I, here I am. I also do wonder how crazy it is to be queer within a queer community and still being told, um, well, because you're not trans, then you shouldn't be um writing to or speaking to trans. Yeah. And it's um, like, well then where's the whole thing when with gay visibility was fine, straight or not, create gay characters, cast gay actors, tell gay, you know, it was just, like I said, it goes back to the Gen X battle was visibility and representation, you know, but now it's literally a battle of what you can and can't do. And that's not a good battle. You know, if I see something offensive to use an old fashioned term, I'm, I'm going to change the channel. I'm not going to try to cancel that artist. You know, if I don't like it, I don't like it. Maybe somebody else does. I'm not wrapped in it, wrapped up in it. You know, that's kind of the Gen X credo. Um, but now, like, if one person is offended, they're going to go on social media and suddenly a million people are offended. Yeah. Well, it's not just that. It also feels like with some of this, some of the pushback, it's almost like this kind of um, PTA, you know, parents association thing where it's like, well, one person thought that the book had, you know, this one thing that that is not appropriate. So now the entire book is banned. Um, Sure. Like we can't, you you can't, the left has become like the right and the right has become like the left. Both are censorious. You can't go on about DeSantis and books they're not allowed to read in Florida if you're trying to ban my film from the festival circuit. You know what I mean? So these are, that's what I mean. Like these are censorious times. These times are very different from five or 10 years ago, because like I would say, starting with the 21st century, you know, in terms of freedom of speech and artistic expression, it was just really a great time, you know, to to say and do what you want, you know, and now it's more censorious. It is, it's, Mm. you know, there are all these things we can and cannot say. And, 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 you know, Disney has a rule, you know, where there's no smoking in any Disney film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, you just can't do that. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are examples of art or artists that probably we should walk away from. Like, somebody asked me um, if um, I think the song of the South should be shown. You know, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. even remember that. And I saw yep. that eight years old at a drive-in in its really? last release before Disney buried it. Oh, okay. And even as a kid, I was like, this is offensive. You know, a happy slave, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, there are rare examples of like, yeah, we need to put that 
in the bunker and forget about it. But those are rare examples. Like, I don't think we should forget about Gone with the Wind, even though the film's offensive. It has a cultural legitimacy, you know. I just think, as an artist, you know, what I feel that should be canceled or condemned, yes, that does happen. But it's, it's not a long list. And it's really dangerous when it becomes this big laundry list. You know, and that's what it's becoming, a big laundry list of artists or films and things we can and cannot do and can and cannot say. And again, like I said, the variety, I think that's something that artists of color are going to regret. It's already biting us in the ass. Look what happened within the Heights, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, which I, uh, which was sad to see, especially because, um, I mean, it still did well, I think, despite what anybody um, might have said about it. And at the end of the day, um, it is it is an extremely uh, ingrained intellectual property. That I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Uh, but you know, I also think that I hope with so. art, yeah. I mean, there's also like I think something about time and art, and that art is something that does, um, you know, especially good art is something that is timeless. And regardless of like uh, what time it came out versus the time that you saw it, um, it's still going to resonate and I think hold weight. Um, mm-hmm. So I think ultimately that is the hope right for the for your film and for all the all the artists that um even though there was this issue at the end of the day um you were able to get distribution for it thankfully um and we are able to to see it in our homes now yeah and that's it is a blessing of the time we live in and also the fact that the distributor stuck by me you know because they could have run for the hills um well like i said that's why I wanted to use the megaphone that I have because other people aren't so lucky, mm. you know, and, you know, and it, tell people to see waking up dead and, you know, I'm Terrasuno one on Instagram and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And if they're offended, they could let me know. But as of yet, the only people who tell me they were offended were festival programs. I have yet to hear it from an audience member, which is interesting. Well, it's you always know. the gatekeepers, right? Never, never the people on the other side is always the ones that are at the gate. Um, that more is quick to, to say things. That is really brilliant and to the point, which is we are in a time where the gatekeepers are afraid. That's the problem. The gatekeepers are afraid. Correct. It is the gatekeepers. And that's the term I use all the time. And they're afraid. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want their festival to be shut down. You know, but then they're giving into a mob, a social media mob mentality. You know, we call them the social media justice warriors. You know, mm. um, I'm not really interested in that. You know, I wrote, produced, directed, and edited and helped finance this film. You know, I accomplish things. I do things. And those are the people I'm interested in. You know, I'm not interested in haters who most likely aren't really doing anything at all. Hmm. Um, and let's, let's uh, switch over more just because I wanted to be able to get some of um, your background and history of just like your kind of like travels from... Like, you know, you were you born here? Were you born in Dominican Republic? Tell us more about kind of your Latino uh, background and heritage and how that influences your your filmmaking. Um, I was born in Queens. My mom was born in, in Santo Domingo. Um, you know, I grew up in New York. And, um, you know, even so, uh, I, I went to NYU Film School for a year. Um, and... Um, there were other Blacks and Latinos in film school, but some of the, and I'm not joking, some of the people straight, like, straight up told us, oh, you know, you're, you're people of color in the film industry, 
so, and I swear, so you shouldn't focus on directing. You should focus on being a DP or an editor. And um, I had uh, a film teacher at NYU who pulled me aside and told me, you know, they're like, she said, I think you're a really talented director, but you're Hispanic. So your chance, I swear, your chance of having a career in Hollywood is near zero. You're a good editor. That's what you should focus on. So it was like a very different time, you know, and, um, and then um, when, uh, when my short debuted at Sundance, I was such a jerk. When my, my, my short debuted at Sundance, NYU invited me back to show it. And I was like, no. But now I'd be like, well, pay me and I'll show up. You know what I mean? But then yeah. I was on my high horse. I was like, no, because you people didn't believe in me. You know, those were different yeah. times. And like I said, when we started this. And who know, is this teacher? Are they anywhere? Are they still teaching at NYU? What, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. You know what? Them, was, what is, who, no, what is, I'm not going to. No, because I'm not Dumb, gonna, I'm dumb, not dumb human being. No, I'm not. You know, I'll tell you something. It's very telling about being an artist of color, you know, 30 years ago. Um, she was my biggest supporter. She thought she was looking out for me. You know, uh, I relate a lot to women because women get that a lot, even now. You know, oh, oh, Polly, you know, you're so talented. But, you know, there's not a lot of women who succeed in this area. So do you want to do that? And people will tell you that well-meaningly. You know what I mean? Not hating on you, but believing that they're doing you a favor so that we could put our energies and talents in a more suitable direction. So the interesting thing about this teacher, and that really did happen, she said that, you know, you should really concentrate on editing, is she was my biggest supporter. And she really thought she was, you know, looking out for me and doing me a favor. You know, that's why I said, you know, times have changed and they've changed for the better. And I try to focus on that, you know. And what is that? Uh, so what is it that that I think keeps you going? Because it's like you definitely grew up. I mean, not just that, like to go from the New York um, Latino Film Festival, which like premiered goodness right before 9-11 in a way. Um, mm -hmm. and so like that was a huge derailment in terms of, you know, um, uh, that journey that that film festival had and just what you have been a part of since the start of your career and all the things that you've had to overcome being the first in the room. Like, how do you, you know, like, how do you keep going? <laughs> how do you keep well, doing the shit? There, there was a period with this project where for the first time in my life and career, I just crashed and I was really down. I was like, this is just, I can't deal with these times, you know? I can't keep having to explain this work or defend this work or getting these crazy emails from film festivals or, you know, having this asinine back and forth with Outfest and you can feel their fear. It's like, what can I do? Like, you know, and, and just, I'm like, once again, you know, it's just a new way of silencing artists of color. And I was really embittered about it, you know, for a couple of months, which is a long time, you know? Um, and then I just, what was helpful was to start engaging with social media more and be in direct contact with the audience more, you know, and, and then to start like the wheels turn, you know, I'm half Italian, the wheels are always turning in my brain. Like I'm always like, you know, you know, if you, if you, if you punch an Italian, it's going to come back at you with a crowbar. And that's when I was like, well, you know, I'll take it to variety. I'll take it to, to, to Breitbart. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get the story out there. And it did pick up my, my, my spirits and help make me feel more vindicated. And now I'm charged again to create again. But, you know, to all those who are listening, these are very difficult times to be an artist. And I would not have said that 10 or 20 years ago. 
30 years ago they were for people of color. Then we have this good 10, 20 year run of being an artist in America where there are so many ways of getting our work out there. And look at the explosion of extraordinary work in episodic, you know, mm. of just extraordinary work. But now like the pendulum is kind of swinging and it's like, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know. And, um, and it's like sometimes what, what I fear is going to happen and you touched upon this a bit, is I think, you know, are we just going to see straight white people now in movies and shows again? Because to do anything else runs the risk of controversy. You know, um, like I love Succession. I, I think it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. I love Succession on HBO. But you know, all the key characters are white and straight. Yeah. And I was like, I almost like, did they arrive there because it's the safest thing to do? Because once you leave that wheelhouse, you'll be, atta you'll be attacked. Like I said, I, 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 I worry about these times. You know, I worry about these times. I really, they're really censorious and it's on the right and the left. And I, I do have deep concerns about these times, I do. Also, like for me, I think I'm much more interested in what the Italian Dominican succession is than what the you know Fox News Australian well, succession is. Just yeah, because, that's good. yeah, I do love it. Right. Well, yeah. well, the Italian Dominican one has a lot more sex and violence. I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, um, Terasio, thank you so much for taking the time um to talk to us about uh your new film, Waking Up Dead, which everyone can check out um in all um streaming services uh currently. Um also please follow him on all his social media handles. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your film, your amazing career. Um, and hopefully we get to back have you back once you're done with your with your latest. For the next um, one they ban. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>